Good afternoon, Mr. and Mrs. North America and all the ships at sea. This is Philip Terzian, literary editor of the Weekly Standard, with my weekly podcast about the books and arts section of this week's Weekly Standard, the May 5th edition, uh, which was published this week and which, as always, I hope, has a delightful selection uh, in the B&A section of the magazine for your reading. Our lead piece is actually not a book review. It is a account of a new art exhibition at the Neue Gallery in New York. The Neue Gallery is a museum on the uh, Upper East Side of Manhattan, um, founded just a few years ago and, and devoted to German art. And the exhibition in the gallery is a reassemblage of 75 works from the 650 works that were in the exhibition of degenerate art in Munich in 1937 during the Nazi era in Germany. Um, Hitler, who of course uh, fancied himself a would-be artist and certainly had aesthetic interests and opinions, um, sponsored an exhibition um, at the House of Art in Munich, which is a large gallery, which still exists, actually, um, of German art that the regime liked. And one of the interesting anomalies of this exhibition, uh, and in some ways characteristic of the regime, is that simultaneously with that exhibition, there was a show of what they called degenerate art. Um, this was all organized essentially under the purview of Joseph Goebbels, who was the minister of propaganda in the Hitler regime, but Hitler certainly had an interest in it. And degenerate art, of course, um, the show of degenerate art featured, uh, as you might imagine, a number of names, uh, Oscar Kokoschka, Max Beckmann, Paul Klee, Kandinsky, Chagall, other names which we regard now, of course, as modern masters. The acceptable uh, German art, which was in the other exhibition, is um, probably we would now characterize mostly as uh, kind of kitschy more than anything else. But anyway, the Neue Gallery has uh, assembled uh, this selection of a handful of, of works, well, 75, from, from that original show of 1937. And it's a fascinating show and a fascinating piece by... James Gardner, who often writes about art for uh, the books and arts section, and has some very interesting insights uh, into not only the the exhibition itself, but the whole idea of of acceptable, unacceptable academic uh, art and so on, uh, then and now. Following that, we have an entertaining uh, book review by Erwin Stelzer, who uh, uh, one of our contributing editors, who also uh, frequently writes about um, finance and economics. It's two books. Um, one is called Fortune Tellers, the Story of America's First Economic Forecasters by Walter Friedman, published by Princeton. The second is called Models Behaving Badly, Why Confusing Illusion with Reality Can Lead to Disaster on Wall Street and in Life by Emanuel Derman, published by Free Press. The first book, The Fortune Tellers, is um, the principal subject of Irwin's piece, and it's largely about um, the growth and flowering, if you might say, in recent decades of 
economic forecasting of uh, models that uh, uh, or people who look at statistics and look at history and look at other things and and advise us about what's what's going to happen in the uh, in the economy and um, uh, I like Erwin's um, opening uh, line in the or actually opening paragraph in the piece which says the nonpartisan congressional budget office regularly revises its forecast of economic growth the deficit and other variables it studies the economic econ economists at the International Monetary Fund likewise periodically revised their forecasts at one point claiming that quote downward revisions to growth forecasts highlight continued fragilities unquote which translated means our forecasts were wrong because we didn't foresee weaknesses in various economies that seems to be the story about economic forecasting everything um, will go according to our predictions as long as everything continues exactly as it has been for the last six months or eight months or a year or a year and a half and of course um, anyone anyway, I guess who's ever read a financial prospectus is familiar with the line that uh, we had expected um, uh, growth to continue at X rate but um, other other uh, things intervened which we hadn't foreseen <laughs> so which I think is pretty much all you have to know about the science of economic forecasting but Irwin examines it very closely and very amusingly. We have a splendid piece by uh, Micah Maddox, who is a professor of literature and also uh, editor of the proofrock.com uh, literary blog on the internet, of the first volume of the correspondence of Robert Frost. And it's, I think, the first of four volumes. I might be mistaken about that. But it takes him up to 1920, Frost, of course, being born in 19, 1874. So by the time this volume ends, Frost is beginning to be well-known as a poet. He was a bit of a late bloomer. Uh, but once um, uh, his poems caught on in the, in the teens, the period just before World War I, uh, he became increasingly well-known. And, of course, by the 1920s and 30s was very well-known. And... By the 50s and 40s, 50s and 60s, he died in 1963, was uh, America's beloved poet. And the point that Micah Maddox makes is that um, about 30 years ago, the uh, authorized biography of Robert Frost was published by a scholar called Lawrence Thompson, who over time developed a real animus to Frost. And the multi-volume biography that he wrote really paints a uh, horrific picture of Frost as a human being. And that picture has to some degree seeped into the, the received wisdom about Robert Frost. Uh, Micah begins with an allusion to a what sounds like a preposterous uh, short story that appeared in Harper's last year by Joyce Carol Oates, where she imagines a confrontation between a young woman at... Um, uh, the Breadloaf um, Writers Conference uh, and Frost, and Frost is revealed to be a nasty, misogynist, lascivious, uh, angry old duffer. And of course, the fact is that Robert Frost was nothing like the way Joyce Carol Oates portrays him, certainly nothing like the way Lawrence Thompson uh, portrays him. And the interesting thing about Robert Frost, too, is that he was a very popular poet and one of the few poets in uh, certainly American literary history who had a, a, a relatively wide 
popular following and readership. And his poems are beloved for many popular reasons, but he was a far more complex human being and certainly a far more complex poet than his reputation would suggest. And Micah talks a lot about that, and, he's, and he gives examples from the letters of um, how Frost developed as a poet, but it's, it's kind of an interesting exploration of Frost, not only as he was, but as he has been perceived since his death. Uh, Micah Maddox's piece is followed by an, what I call an authoritative essay by Daniel Blumenthal of the American Enterprise Institute, a review of two books, The Contest of the Century, The New Era of Competition with China and How America Can Win by Jeff Dyer, and another book called Balancing Without Containment, An American Strategy for Managing China by Ashley Tellus. These are two academic tomes, but really on the subject of uh, answering the question of whether the United States faces uh, a strategic as well as economic challenge from China in the, in the foreseeable future. And they both answer the question in the affirmative and have uh, some prescriptions about what we as a as a nation can do about it um, probably should be must the, certainly Daniel Blumenthal's piece should be uh, which I've titled Beijing Rising the Chinese Challenge to American Supremacy certainly should be must reading for anyone who aspires to the presidency in 2016 um, and uh, it's a long piece, but well worth uh, reading, and uh, an eye-opening piece, if I may say. I've got two other pieces, uh, a, a very amusing, as always, essay by Joe Queenan on uh, his meditation on uh, coupons, shopping coupons as emblems of consumer confidence, um, what Joe thinks about coupons and what use uh, to which they can be put. And... Our movie review this week by John Podhoritz is of the new Johnny Depp uh, science fiction thriller called um, Transcendence. Um, John makes the point that science fiction tends to work best when it's an extrapolation of things that we know and things that um, uh, is sort of a logical ac extrapolation of reality. And that when you mix that formula with kind of fanciful magic, which transcendence seems to be full of, um, you kind of lose credibility and the, the, the audience's willing suspension of disbelief is sacrificed. And so John isn't, uh, I mean, the, the movie sounds like a kind of fascinating mess and John isn't very impressed by it. But as always with John's pieces, um, whether you're interested in the movie or not, or whether he likes them or not, um, he always has a lot of interesting things to say about each film and the history of film and the making of films, and that's no exception here. So that's the May 5th edition. I thank you for listening. I hope I have uh, perhaps prompted you to uh, read the original before my translation, and I look forward to talking to you one week from today. Thank you very much.